Uh, good evening, everyone, and it's wonderful that uh, we have this opportunity this evening to have a, a Q&A uh, with Pastor John and Pastor Conrad, and uh, we thank you both for your agreement to participate in this, and uh, we're just going to pray now together that this would uh, be an edifying time, uh, this would be a blessing, and uh, we're not just asking questions for the sake of it, we're asking questions to grow. Um, I want to ask Pastor John if you would commit our time to the Lord now. I don't know if I have my button on. Am I on or do I? Yes, okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need wisdom now. There's no preparation for something like this except life lived and the Bible studied and prayers made. And so come now and be on Conrad and me and all of us, so that there is a remarkable connection of Holy Spirit-given, Bible-saturated wisdom that penetrates souls where preaching may not. There are 10,000 needs across this room, and you know every one of them, bring out of our mouths surprising things that would Go to those needs. Love your people well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I'm going to have the privilege, as I said, of asking the questions. My name is Tyrell Hogg, and I'm from Constantia Park Baptist Church. And um, it really is great to be in a chair that's asking questions uh, for a change instead of giving answers. And uh, I think you're going to get a bit more tough questions than I get, and uh, we hope that will be beneficial. But to start off with, and uh, just to help us to get to know you both a little bit better on a, on a personal level, can you give us a picture of your daily routine? What does day-to-day look like from morning to evening in, in your house? Um, Pastor Conrad, why don't you start for us? Uh, thank you. Um... Basically, part of my life involves an itinerant ministry, and because of that, what I'm going to give you as a typical day has to do with uh, when everything is under my control and I'm at home (laughs) in the church context. Um, Like most pastors, I'm, I'm up between five and six, and I disappear into uh, a corner of my home uh, for regular reading, prayer, and uh, I take a short break to see uh, my wife off for work and then continue uh, having freshened up with um, study up until about 10. Um, it is only after 10 that I then move over into my office. Thankfully, my home and office are a driveway across from each other. And that's when I handle most of my office work. Um, in the afternoon, I then do uh, some basic visitations or meet uh, pastors and so on. So that is the time when I have my meetings. I'm back home briefly in the first part of the evening and then go out to do visitation. 
I try to be home usually by about uh, half past eight, or as we say back home, uh, 20.30. And at that point, I normally have a meal and also family devotions with uh, uh, my wife and children. I'm an early sleeper, and so generally speaking, round about uh, 22 hours or 10, I migrate to the bedroom and do the kind of reading or chatting with my wife that's meant to uh, take me into the land of Nod. So generally that's... that's <laughs> over to you, John. <laughs> let, me, let me approach it a little differently uh, and, and give you a week instead of a day. Um, and, and here's a caution. Anytime you read a biography or you hear a question like this answered... And it, and it sounds like that's the way it was. It, it hasn't been this way, right? You've been there 27 years or so? 23. I've been 30. It wasn't. What I'm going to describe now is not the way it was 10 years ago. That's not the way it was 10 years earlier. And that's not the way it was 10 years earlier. So please, don't, don't consider this anything but a slice out of one peculiar person's life. Nothing should feel normative about what we're saying, I don't think. So, okay, but here we go. Um, Sun, uh, I preach Saturday night uh, at, at 5.30, that's recorded, and then I preach twice on Sunday morning, same sermon, three times every weekend, and, uh, and then that, the, the recorded one is used on other campuses, we have three campuses, so, so uh, Saturday night, committed to preaching, Sunday twice, come home, no commitments, usually Sunday afternoon, except what spontaneously comes up for visitation. I have a small group commitment to a, a five families that I meet with uh, once a month to pray for each other. And the men meet once a month. That puts us every other week in touch with each other. Monday is a day off. I try to just kick back, play Scrabble with my wife, jog, sleep in late, read books I wouldn't ordinarily read, take walks. Uh, Tuesday is devoted to staff. So, you know, that, that's, that's just because we have a larger church. So a three-hour staff meeting in the morning and then smaller staff meeting after lunch and then individual staff issues. So all internal staff stuff on Tuesday. Wednesday's open. Um, there, we have a midweek service in the evening. I sometimes have responsibilities there to teach. I sometimes don't. So I can either study, prepare for things like this or uh, tackle stuff that has to always be produced. If you're, if you're leading, people always have questions to answer. And so you're, you're constantly answering questions, answering email, making decisions, thinking through children's ministries and children's curriculums and youth stuff and structural things all the time. Thursday is uh, same thing. So Tuesday and Thursday are kind of they're flexible days. Friday is all sermon preparation. I don't start my sermon preparation for the weekend until Friday morning, which is unusual for a lot of people. They, they would panic if they did it that way. But I start early in the morning, and then I don't go to bed until the sermon is finished. And then I get up Saturday, and I consider Saturday morning leisure exercise. And noon, I'm, I'm with the Lord over that sermon until 5.30 so that it, it goes from paper to, to here and then we start all over again. So th those, those midweek days, Wednesday and Thursday, are the flexible various ones that could be counseling, could be visitation, could be crisis intervention, could be hospital, or it could be preparing for an event like this. Well, 
you said you can't prepare for Q&As that well, but uh, Wednesdays, is that the day you say you get a lot of questions? Um, this is your Wednesday. Okay. <laughs> uh, one of the topics that comes up often, um, I'm sure you've, you've heard it a lot of times, First Peter chapter 3, verse 19. I want to ask you about this, Pastor John. Um, it says that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, but after it says that he died or suffered in the flesh, it says he went to proclaim to the spirits that are now uh, held in prison, that were once disobedient in the days of Noah. People say that uh, Jesus went and preached to the spirits that are in, in hell. Um, what's, what's your take on that? Let's, let's get it right, first of all. We've got to get the wording right. Um, because my take on it is not the historic take on it. I don't, I don't recite that part of the Apostles' Creed. I don't think it should be in the Creed. It's way too marginal to be in the Creed. Um, for Christ also suffered once... the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay. In the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits, what if we translated it, who are now in prison? Not that he went into prison and proclaimed to them there, but in his spirit, through Noah, he preached. Who are now in prison. I'll read it again, just see if that works. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which, in which spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison and relate it back to uh, 1, 10, and 11. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that uh, was to be yours and inquired carefully, these, these prophets inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating uh, when he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So you, you already have a reference in 1 Peter 1.10 and 11 that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through the prophets. And then you come to 3.19 and the Spirit by which and in which he was raised. In that Spirit he preached to those people who are now in prison because they formerly did not obey when he preached. So that, that's the way I take it. I, I don't think there's any biblical warrant for saying Christ descended into hell. Now, if he did, I'm okay with that. I mean, I grew up believing that. And then I just began to look at this and saying, well, I'm just not, not sure. So uh, I, take the, I take the view Wayne Grudem does in his systematic theology that these texts here and the one in uh, Ephesians 4, descended in the lower parts of the earth, don't refer to Christ's descent into hell. I don't think savingly we lose anything, but I don't know if that's the way you take it or not. Yeah. I would be 100% on the same page uh, as John uh, with respect to the fact that this must be referring to uh, the spirit of Christ 
having preached to these people who are now in prison and uh, they're now in hell. So he preached through Noah in those days. Um, I think it's one of those um, statements that at one time would have been interpreted in a particular way and unfortunately it got into black and white and it has outlived the initial interpreters. That would be my comment. So. One other observation to stir in. On the cross, um, Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So if I've got any indicator of where he went between his death and his resurrection, it's paradise. Yeah, and also I think we all know that nobody in hell has been given a second chance to pop out and... All right, so that makes the point. Okay, so there's no point in Jesus going down to preach to them if their fate has already been sealed. Yeah, I, the, the answer they would give to you, which I disagree with, is he didn't go there to give them a second chance. He went there to seal their doom because he knew they would reject him and nobody goes to hell without rejecting Jesus. That's kind of the argument I've heard. But that does, isn't necessary because they rejected Jesus in Noah. That's the point of chapter 1, verse 11. Well, that's helpful. And uh, <laughs> in a really, a, I guess, a controversial issue, or at least a, a debated issue in... Yeah, I, I would encourage you not to spend a lot of time on that. Yeah. I mean, really. I, I, I'm surprised. I, I, in fact, yeah, okay. I, I travel around, and frankly, I'm sometimes dismayed at the marginal things people are bent out of shape about. Churches are, are getting all worked up over things that they ought not to get worked up over. If I were a pastor, I'd pass over that real fast. And, and if your people are all worked up about it, I'd preach on why they shouldn't be. You know? So that's not central enough to get, get upset about. So I don't care if you disagree with me on that. Shake your hand, love you, hug you. Just, that's not a... Well, talking about shaking hands and, and loving and hugging, uh, Conrad and Barry, I want to ask you, what, are your, what is your take on, on dating and where that fits into uh, today's culture? Is it biblical, um, or at least the way dating is done today? Is that the way it's supposed to happen? Um, well, I've written a book. It's in that book. <laughs> <laughs> Get yourself a copy. It has uh, <laughs> a summary in one sentence. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think basically, fr from the context of first of all the culture in which we are, and also my understanding of scripture, is the fact that male-female relationships need to grow in the context of uh, the Christian Church in uh, the context of uh, the wider family and community and the, the whole process of mate selection should be primarily one in which you are relating to one another in terms of compatibility and also in terms of seeking the, the Lord in, in genuine prayer uh, that in due season he may, whatever 
your final leading might be of him but uh, the key in finding a, ra a right partner is that of compatibility spiritual compatibility being the key and then of course this vocational what it is you'll be doing together for uh, for life um, dating as i seem to come across it in the western world is a foreign phenomena for uh, our own people back home want to add anything yeah i wish it were a foreign phenomena um, <laughs> so i just read a blog yesterday and this may or may not be true, it sounds true to me, that the biggest moral change in the last 50 years, I, I suppose it's talking about the West, I don't know, the biggest moral change is the change in attitude towards premarital sex. If, if, if that's true, and I suspect it is, in other words, um, what, surveys in America would be 8th graders, half of them had intimacy or something like that. Just staggering numbers. Now where did that come from? It came from dating. It came from new attitudes of what boys and girls are supposed to do with each other starting around 12 or 13 years old. And, and we tell them, uh, find a friend and hang out. And that's ridiculous. The, the, the chemistry of male and female isn't designed that way. Uh, and so here's what, what, what we encourage. We, you've got to define dating. If dating means pairing off at 13, 14, 15, 16, pairing off. So now you've got a boy and a girl spending a lot of time together, doing stuff together. There's only one thing that can happen. They're going to feel real strong towards each other. They're going to like each other a lot. That liking is going to become sexual. Then they've got this massive pull, which is all designed for marriage, which is probably six years out. Or two or three, depending on your culture. What in the world? How are they going to manage that? And we encourage them into that. So instead, I think we should encourage church-oriented groups. Boys and girls together. You can't isolate them from each other. But all, we just, I encourage my kids all the way along. I said, God, I had four sons, now I've got a daughter. And I say, just be groupy until you're in college. Okay? Till you're 18. Do group stuff. Have a great time. Do, go places, do things, but always be four, six, eight. None of this. Don't pair off. Don't fall for a guy. Don't linger with a guy or a, or a girl. Now, not all my sons followed my advice. <laughs> I mean, they, they were careful, but, but it's hard to prevent that sort of thing. So, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not real encouraged and impressed with the system in the West of, of dating. I, I think the emphasis of I kissed dating goodbye is probably a good idea. Josh Harris is saying wise things. Uh, courting may get a bad name if it becomes too silly and, you know, too narrow and too negative, but, but it's a good idea to, to, to think pairing off is preparation for marriage. Pairing off is preparation for marriage. And so when it begins to happen, both of them should be thinking that way. We are, we are testing. Do I like you? Do you like me? Thinking that's what it's for. Fifteen-year-olds don't think that way. They just got these hormones going, I like to be with you, and then I want to touch you, and then I want to touch all of you, and then I want to get in bed with you. That's, that's the way it, it goes. And so the statistics are not, not surprising. So I'm sorry what the West has done. And if your culture isn't that way, you should praise God. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, we've got a, a few questions about... Um...
raising children and about families. And uh, it's kind of related, but uh, Pastor Mbewe, the Bible commands parents to raise their children in the admonition of the Lord. What is your view or what would you encourage Christians to do with regards to sending their children to secular boarding schools, secular kind of institutions? Um, what kind of wisdom is there uh, in that? Yes. Um, again, some of these questions are related to which part of the world you are in. Because um, if, for instance, I was to think in terms of Zambia, and think in terms of rural Zambia, um, the parents in the church there would not be thinking in terms of sending their children anywhere else, but to government-run schools. And therefore, I think the primary issue is the principle. And the principle is that it is the responsibility of parents. Notice the phrase I'm about to use, to oversee the education of their children. Now, how that fleshes out depends on really where you are and the opportunities that are there for you. The Bible speaks in terms of the role of fathers to teach and admonish their children. You are preparing them for responsibility in adulthood, and consequently it matters who is educating your children at different phases of their lives. You need to be relating to your children enough to ensure that they are developing a biblical world view as they are growing up. But as to where exactly they should be, I think that ought at the end of the day to be left to the husband and the wife who are the governors of homes. I think that's what I would say. Well, on that, um, Pastor Piper, how, what, what practical ways could parents use to instill a God-centered worldview in their children, especially when in the world they're often faced with the totally opposite worldview? The most important thing a parent can do is be, be. The, the main job of a parent is to become a Christian, to become a, a full-blooded, articulate, consistent, non-hypocritical, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, in the living room, in the car, consistent, Christ-exalting, God-centered, Bible-saturated human being. Because 90% of children's ethos is caught, not taught. So I think you should spend 90% of your time becoming a Christian and 10% studying parenting because that's about the proportion that children get it. That's the first thing. Go to conferences like this until you're dead and keep growing and growing and, and, and your, your children are watching you. They're always watching you. They're watching you when they don't know they're watching you. They're absorbing your demeanor and your attitudes and your tones of voice and your attitudes to each other all the time. 
You can't, you can't plan that. It's scary to be a parent. So that, that's the first thing. And then the second thing, don't minimize, like I just did perhaps, the value of planning Bible reading and prayer with your wife alone, I'm talking to men now, and with your children together every day, once or twice. Few things change people that isn't done every day. It's daily habits that stick. And even when these children may go haywire when they're 19, it never leaves them. A deposit is given. If you have a child, say for 18 years, and you start from the time they're six months old, teaching them to pray and read their Bible. <laughs> you can set a little child down as, as a year old or less with a tape player and a story in it about the Bible and have them have personal devotions. A one-year-old can have personal devotions. We did it. Don't wait until they're six. They love stories. They, they love music. Get some of this music we're having. Put it on a little tape. You sit in that corner for three minutes, listen to the tape, talk to Jesus. And then we'll come back. And build it into them. So we're going to steal personal devotions and family devotions and model wife devotions. And, and the content of that should be this book. You don't have to be educated at all to do this in any formal way. You just have to be able to read. And if you can't read, give it to your wife because she can read. You say, honey, read a few verses from the Gospel of John. I'm not kidding. I've done that with men in my church. I had a man say to me, I can't lead my wife. She's, she's got a college education. I've got an eighth grade education. There's no way I can lead. I said, I don't believe it. Can you say let's, L-E-T apostrophe S. Can you say let's? Try it. Say let's. Let's. Okay, if you can say let's, you can lead. <laughs> let's have devotions. Try it tonight. I require you. Come back next week. I want you to try it tonight. Say to your teenagers, let's go to the living room. Okay? You're all here. Carol, let's read the Bible. Would you choose a chapter and read it? And he's done. That's leadership. So you, you, you can make that happen. So don't, don't worry. Don't worry that your wife is more articulate, smarter. Most of them are. And, but, but she wants you to lead. She wants you to lead. She, she's willing to read. She's willing to do all that stuff that she's better at. But she doesn't want you to just be a couch potato. So, real important that men take leadership here. Even men who feel like they don't have much to offer can do it. It's Bible and then it's a simple prayer and try to, try to give some application. And here, one more thing. Absolutely crucial for building uh, the gospel into your into your children's lives. Repent often in front of them and to them. Okay? This is rare, I'm afraid. I, I, and I suspect in certain cultures it's more rare than others. There's kind of a, an aura of manhood or, or adulthood that keeps you from, from saying you're sorry I sinned to a 15-year-old. I had to do that this morning. Uh, the breakfast came earlier than I thought. I thought we were going to meet at 7.30. It came at 7.15. I said, oh, shoot. I was going to spend 15 minutes with the family. So I said, Talitha and Noel, come back here in the bedroom. They came down. I put my arms around each of them and said, we're going to pray together. And before I did it, Noel called me on something last night. Something I said and did 
that made her feel uncared for. And I thought, I said, okay, she's right. And she told me in the bathroom. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. But she, that, she, that was over, it was settled. And, uh, but I felt Talitha was there. She was there. She didn't feel that. So I put my arms around both of them and said, Talitha, Mommy drew to my attention that last night I did this and it was uncaring. And she said, I don't think it was uncaring. <laughs> I said, well, it was. It was. And I'm sorry to both of you. And then I prayed and I confessed it to God. That's huge. That's hard. I did not like doing that. I find it very difficult. But all you dads and moms, you will breed gospel-loving children if you are broken and penitent in their presence often. Anything you want to add, Pastor Conrad? No. Um, um, uh, uh, the, the emphasis on um, the leadership of the father on uh, a Bible-centered family devotions, um, I think those are the aspects that bring out the, the biblical world view while you are in the real world. Uh, another question for, for you, Pastor Piper, something that's um, been quite an issue in, in Africa, and just a, a comment on it. Uh, the prosperity gospel, um, is it scriptural? Uh, is it an overemphasis on a certain part of scripture? And how does it impact on the sovereignty of God? Well, at least the idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my. This, this, is, this is huge, and there'll be a big... Three papers have been written on this for the Lausanne Conference next week. I think I'm disappearing. So, I... Anyway. Um, I'm willing to hold something, if that would help. Okay. There'll be three papers on this at the Lausanne uh, gathering. It's a big issue. And uh, in the third edition of Let the Nations Be Glad, my book on missions, which just came out last year, uh, I begin it with a chapter on the prosperity gospel. So if you want to know my most recent thoughts, I, I basically crafted in terms of 12 things I want to say to prosperity preachers. And they're just cautions. And I put it like that because, you know, um, I, I have in the past said really strong, strong words like, I hate the prosperity gospel. Now... I've backed up from that a little bit and said, I need to define it first. Because there are hateful things about it. If, if the prosperity gospel means you should come to Jesus because he will make you rich and healthy and your wife won't miscarry and your pigs won't die. If that's why you're coming, that's bad. That's not the reason to come. Paul invited people to come and die. When the grace of God came to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it said that out of much affliction and extreme poverty, they became liberal and gave generously to the saints in Jerusalem. Much affliction, extreme poverty. Poverty hadn't gone away and affliction had increased. Life gets worse when you become a Christian. For many people, not better. So we need to 
present Jesus not as the one who fixes all your earthly problems, but the one who fixes your eternity. And as you grow in likeness to him, the wherewithal to deal with some of your earthly problems will increase. So this is why I want to be cautious, because there's no doubt that where the gospel takes root over generations, life gets better. It does. Because corruption goes away. Which is the great cause of poverty and misery in so many cultures. Big men ripping off little men by stashing all the money away and buying their big cars and wearing their big rings and flying their big jets, whether it's American or, or African. That, that's wicked. That sort of thing goes away when the gospel comes. And so it does have a bettering effect. But selling it that way is backward. We, we love Jesus and we say, though he slain me, yet will I trust him. Um, as far as the sovereignty of God goes, um, God's sovereignty in the life of Job is the point. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the point of the book. God killed his kids. And if you say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't God, it was the devil. It wasn't the devil. A great wind came. God controls the wind. And Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord took away and fell on his face and worshipped. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God is sovereign in our pain. God is sovereign over our pain. The sovereignty of God doesn't take away our pain. It orders our pain and makes us able to grow by it and not lose faith. Amen. Pastor Conrad, is working? Yeah. yeah. Um, can you give us a... It's only working here, not there. Oh, oh there we go. Um, can you help us think for a moment around tithing, uh, tithing 10% in the Old Testament? Is that a legalistic Old Testament thing, or is that something that should be taught in churches today? Uh, can you comment on that? All right. Um, issues like this often um, cut Christians into two clean camps like a knife, a hot knife through butter. And uh, I'm not sure that the answer I will give will persuade one camp to cross over to the other. All that will happen is that you will know what one side thinks, and that's the side I'm on. Um, I believe that uh, giving in the church is in terms of tithing and free will offering. It must not be done legalistically in terms of the absence of joy, the absence of gratitude. However, it provides something of a, of a minimum figure, something of a working figure that enables people to appreciate where the Christian church is coming from in the Old Testament and one trusts that God's people in the new will maximize a lot more on 
the fact that because the Lord has given his all, then I need to give as much as I possibly could to kingdom work. In terms of passages, obviously people will go to the Old Testament, but I tend to fall into 1 Corinthians 9, where, if I could just quickly read, the Apostle Paul speaking about the support for ministry, puts it this way. 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle says, uh, beginning with verse 13, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? And then he says, the little phrase, in the same way, drawing a parallel between the old and the new, and then he says, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And what I seem to see there is that there was a method in the Old Testament through which the ministry was supported. And it was not just free will offering. The people of God took their tithes to the temple and out of that the entire priesthood and the ministry of the priests was supported. And Paul says, in the same way. This time it's not the priests doing their regular routines in the temple. It is the preachers of the gospel who are now living the way in which the priests were supported uh, in the old. And Paul is basically saying, as a church planting missionary, I spared you during the phase of the church planting. But that doesn't mean you should not grow up and begin playing your role now. Peter was supported. I ought to be supported as well. So that would be my answer. But again, as I said, in answering that question, I think it's good for you to know what your church's position is, what your church elders together think, and I think it's important to respect that. It won't change your giving as an individual, so you respect that. It's not a matter for which you should abandon an entire church to go elsewhere. That's what I'll say. Do you want to add anything on I think the caution I would give, and I think I agree what you said, is there is a way to get your people to exceed tithing by almost never mentioning tithing. Because I, I think churches are turned into legalistic misery houses by harping on things like tithing. When I talk about tithing, now I'm, ta I'm, an, I'm in an American context. Virtually all Americans are wealthy, even though they describe 10% of them as poor, because the poor are wealthy by worldly standards. So I'm talking to middle class people who have lots of money to spare, if they spend it the way they should. I say, 
Tithing is a middle class way of robbing God. Which means if you only tithe, you're robbing God. I mean, this is ridiculous. Tithing was an Old Testament minimum. What? Christ has died for you? You have all the privileges of the new covenant and you're going to do less? Give me a a break. That's the way I talk. And then I forget about it and then I talk about dying. I, I say all of it is God's. It's all God's. You think 90% is yours? Baloney. None is yours. You're a steward. You're a manager. You will give an account for every penny of it. I'm more concerned with the videos my people rent than whether they tithe. I'm more concerned with the kind of car they buy than whether they tithe. I just think there are notes to strike about whole life issues, whole disciple issues, laying your whole life down. The whole bank account is on the altar and what they do on Saturday and Sunday and Friday night is just as important as what goes in the offering plate on Sunday morning. So yes to this. And and the, the, the easiest text for yes to this is you tithe mint, dill and cumin, criticizing how meticulously the Pharisees tithe. And he said... And you neglect the greater matters of the law, love and justice and faith. These you ought to have done, and then finish it. <laughs> and continue with that which you That's have right. been doing. Don't, don't neglect the others. No. That's interesting, isn't it? But, but the, the, you see where the emphasis for Jesus fell? Justice, faith, love. So be careful, pastors and teachers, that you not harp on things that, that aren't harp, they're not worthy of harping. If, if you don't have a people who tithe out of the overflow of their total allegiance to Jesus, what have you got? I mean, maybe a financially sustainable legalism, but what, what, is, what is that? Amen. 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 Maybe a question for both of you. We, we've got you here and we're grilling you with questions. And we want you to answer anything that comes up. We've got you here um, preaching to our churches. And some people might feel in light of how powerful um, the witness that God has given to both of you. They might feel that perhaps in themselves that their witness is so weak and insignificant and puny that as much as you are such an encouragement to Christians, sometimes your example may even discourage what is your response to, to that from both of you? <laughs> Pastor Conrad can go first. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm not conscious of any singular gifting on my part. I, I readily admit that. I, I, I do my bit, I study, I prepare, I teach, I write, I preach, I, I dream. Um, but I'm not conscious of anything beyond the ordinary. I'm, I must admit that. Um, and that's where I find this, this question um, rather difficult. I, I have had one or two comments, so, you know, Maybe I'd, 
asked someone to come and preach in my church when I was supposed to have been away and then I'm around and then he begins to say something like no 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 I know no. with you being present it's a little difficult for me to preach um, but I'm not conscious of it myself um, the only answer I would give is look at Paul look at Peter look at John look at James and you can clearly see that they were completely different. I mean, Paul was a great mind. Um, I think John, as we heard elsewhere, sort of goes in circles, goes in circles, a little poetically, but you know, makes you feel the truth rather than be able to plot it um, on a graph. Uh, James, a very practical individual, and uh, um, that's what he wants to see. He wants he he he. Um, flaws with you know what are you doing rather than a lot of uh, doctrinal issues so my answer therefore would be be comfortable in your own skin be yourself and seek to to better your ministry with time be the best you can be now and keep growing um, I think that would be the answer. Ten years from now, you, you must have made progress. Twenty years from now, you must have made progress. Have good role models before you, but don't try and be like them today, because then you will be an echo, an empty echo. Um, walk with the Lord, study His Word, pray, be yourself. And, um, yeah, that is what um, I, would, I would say there. Maybe John has better things to say. Nothing better, but there are endless things to say about this. And, and here may be the most important thing to say. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Mm. Nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. That is the word of God. There's not a person in this room who's a believer who is dispensable. Everybody's different. So, just the echo. Be okay with what God made you. That's what I was trying to get at with the weakness thing this morning. There are people I will never reach. You, you think, you know, I speak in front of 2,500 people and I'm loud and blah, blah, blah. How many people are in this city? I'm never going to see them. You know 20 of them. You are so uniquely positioned. One soul... And all heaven throws a party. You think you're not significant. One word spoken to somebody I'll never see. Man, just get what we need is a big theology of God's sovereignty over your individuality. You are no mistake. Male and female, no mistake. White, black, no mistake. Smart, stupid, no mistake. 
the world these stupid witnesses. They can relate. So be encouraged. You're not an accident and you're so, let's just read it again. Those which seem to be weaker are indispensable. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 22. Put it on your wall if you think you're one of those. Pastor Piper, a question for you. You've spoken much about joy and uh, also about suffering. Could you make a few comments on how it's possible to find joy in and through suffering versus not suffering at all? So, joy in the suffering as opposed to joy without suffering. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering works patience, and patience works approvedness, and approvedness works hope, and hope does not put to shame because the love of God is poured out into our lives, mm. into our hearts. Romans 5, 3 through 5. So, the logic is affliction and suffering comes into your life. It produces hupomone, endurance. It's like a, a muscle. My wife and I are doing some personal training at a gym right now, and they make us hurt. <laughs> they, they put weights, a 15-pound weight in my hand, and make me do this 25 times. And on, on number 17, it hurts. He says, come on, come on, finish it, come on. Why is it? That's pain. That, that, that's artificial affliction. What's that about? It produces physical hupomone, patience. It tells the bicep, suffer bicep, so that you learn how to lift 20 pounds. So God does that with our souls and with our minds and with our marriages and with our children and with our churches. He puts us through fire in order that this thing called patience and endurance might, might grow. And then endurance, he says, produces uh, documene. I translated it approvedness. It's what gold has when it's gone through fire and all the dross has gone out and now gold is left over. Mm. And what he's doing, he's burning the, the uh, what do you call it, dross, dross out of your gold. You come through fire. If you make it through the suffering to the other side, you look at yourself and you say, I'm real. When you're not suffering, okay, I speak for myself now. When I'm not having any problems, the devil can say things like, well, he said it to God concerning Job. The reason he's praising you is because everything's going well for him. And then you wonder, is that true? And you start to wonder about your own salvation. So Paul says suffering comes into our life, among other reasons, to produce this sense, I'm real. I survived a test. I endured temptation. I endured the trial. I'm on the other side of this one. Here comes another one. I'm a little bit stronger for this one now. And your faith grows. And as your faith grows and your approvedness grows, hope. Now, hope, I think, is one of those affections I was talking about, which is all interwoven with joy. A hopeful person is not a sad person. 
He's a joyful person. So that's the sequence that Paul says suffering is intended to produce. And our job is to trust him through all that, that he's really a good therapist or a good doctor, does surgery well, or uh, a good physic, uh, what do you call it, a good trainer in the gym who makes you hurt because he, he cares about you, wants to be strong so that you'll live longer and serve better and lift heavier burdens for people. On the issue of perhaps doubting your salvation then, um, Pastor Conrad, what would you suggest someone needs to do who, who thinks that they're saved but they're just unsure? What, what kind of thing would you say to that person? Um, the, the whole question of assurance or salvation is a sensitive one. Mm-hmm. And my advice would always be, if you're battling with assurance of, assurance of salvation, spend time with one of your church leaders. If you go to a pastor, go and speak to them. Because you really need um, a physician of souls. You need to be in the hands of somebody whose knife cuts what needs to be cut off and keeps what needs to be kept. Um, So that would be what I would say. So that as you share what is robbing you of assurance of salvation, that physician of souls is able to see where your, your logic is wrong, where your thinking is wrong and help you to see things biblically. And even when he helps you to see things biblically, he may need a number of sessions with you, so that with time, you begin to heal on the right side. That's really the the answer that I would give. There are a lot of people who, when God first saves them, He gives them the kind of joy that can be equal to a a cloudless sky, sunny sky, for days on end. And then the first time they experience the reality of indwelling sin or remaining sin, poof, they sink. And they come looking very low, sad, depressed, and say, Pastor, I don't think I'm saved. When you listen to what they're talking about, it's the normal Christian life. So one can then take them through the scriptures to make them see that all that has happened is that the honeymoon is over. And God is now saying, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there would be that reality. Although that does not mean that you don't have individuals whose doubt, in fact, is healthy because they were not Christians in the first place. So my advice would always be go to somebody who is a trusted physician of souls and let that person help you. A question for for you, Pastor John. Um, The Bible makes it clear in 
quite a few passages that a man's responsibility is, is to his wife and to his family. And Paul, Paul talks about that to Timothy and for the position of an elder. How does sacrificing, sacrificing things in one's life, maybe in, in missions kind of living, relate to that command? Because sometimes they, they seem at odds. Yeah, they do. Can you comment on that? Uh, I don't know what to say, because you're right. Sometimes they uh, feel in conflict and are in conflict. Um, so at the beginning, I said, I think, be sure you marry the right person. But you don't know what he or she will become. Marriage is one of the biggest risks we all take couldn't enter it without without God. So Jesus said to let him who has ears to hear, to him who is given, let him hear it. Um, so you marry, you enter ministry, she's okay with that, and then you get a passion for a place or a kind of ministry, and she, I, I didn't sign up for that. I wasn't part of the deal. And there feels like conflict. It might be missions. It might be an inner city, risky place to live. It might be working with down and outers. It might be working with up and outers. And she didn't want to do that. Um, and I would say um, the answer is not this or that. The answer is process. Love her well. Listen deep. Pray long, be patient, stay together. Um, God will God will bring her along, or God will bring him along. I, I've got couples in my church where the women... I mean, she was in Thailand five years before she was. he was in her head. She's way ahead. He's still a businessman. And now they're both there, serving the poor, in the poorest district of Bangkok. And he's totally there, but she was there way earlier. And I've had it be the other way around. The man goes first... In both cases, they were, they were patient with each other. They prayed. They came to me and said, I want to go, and he doesn't want to go. And I want to go, and she doesn't want to go. Or a lifestyle, or a purchase, or a house, or whatever. And, and in, in these lifestyle choices, choices I think, the, the marriage is supreme. The covenant. You didn't make a covenant with a ministry when you married. You made a covenant with a woman. And that covenant is, is together till death do us part. So it has a certain priority over lifestyle issues. And so a ministry call will never produce divorce. Something else is going to produce that. And you want her heart in it and his heart in it. And so I think all I would say is trust the Lord to, to find the right person and then trust the Lord that he's going to work in both of you and and uh, he does. I've just seen it happen over and over again. Um, and I suppose one last thing. I, I think men should take the initiative here and, and, and press forward in God's leading in their life. Always consulting. Always talking to his wife. Always taking her wisdom into account concerning the children, concerning the marriage. Amen. Pastor Conrad, um, an opinion. What do you think we're going to be doing in heaven 
if we could describe it as 24-7, what are we going to do, be doing all the time? <laughs> it's not really an opinion. You know, God is wonderful beyond description. He, his glory is indescribable. We will be absorbed with him and eternity will be too short. That's my answer. Going off of that to the opposite, um, Pastor John, in a lot of your messages you've spoken of how God wants people to enjoy Him. And um, a question that someone could ask is, does God want everyone to enjoy Him, even those objects that were prepared for wrath, that were predestined for that? Yes and no. Because the word want is ambiguous. And I, I don't say this to create problems. I, create this, I say this because of texts. Uh, God desires all men to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Desires. And I don't think it works to say all kinds of men. I know that's the standard Calvinistic way of, of saying it. I don't think so. I think, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes means God loves lost people. All of them. Such that anyone who believes will be saved. That's the way the verse works. For God so loved the world that, so loved that, whoever, whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. And that whoever we should preach absolutely, indiscriminately to all people, God loves you such that any of you who believes will be saved. This free offer that I'm throwing out to you now, this lifeline, is a real, genuine, bona fide love offer. And you could call that a want. A want. Same thing in 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should repent. I guess 1 Timothy is God desires all to be saved. And here is repent and come to knowledge of the truth. So those two verses are usually thrown back at Reformed people as contradicting the doctrine of election and irresistible grace. And I don't want to weasel at all on those. I simply want to say there is a level, a level, now this is mysterious, in God's wisdom in mind which is a bona fide willing and a bona fide wanting but beneath that is a level of God's choices according to his infinite wisdom 
about what he will in fact do. And he doesn't save everybody. And it might be helpful, just, I'll, I'll just read this and then and I'll be quiet. This may be helpful. I, rem- I, I wrote a, a paper one time called, Are There Two Wills in God? And the answer is yes. And I remember reading a kind of response to that in a book by a collection of Arminian theologians, one of which was written by, I wonder if I should name him, I probably should, since it's public, I. Howard Marshall, a very famous New Testament scholar who would not consider himself reformed in a Calvinistic five-point sense. And he said, after quoting 1 Timothy 2, God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, he says there is no indication in the pastoral letters that God has another kind of will than that one. That's not true. And I'll read it to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's the very language of 1 Timothy 2.4, where it says God wills for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And here it says God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil. And he may not. I would say that's a very clear evidence that at one level God is willing that none perish but all come to a knowledge of the truth. And then when God consults his infinite wisdom, all things taken into account, he makes choices about who he will decisively bring to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. So, yes, we should say to unbelievers indiscriminately, God wants you saved. And then we interpret that by offering them Christ. Anyone, I don't care how many sins you've sinned, I don't care how many girls you've slept with, God can wipe your sins clean and He will do it and He wants to do it if you will trust in Jesus. And if they come a little closer, you put your arm and say, could we pray? And then you pray, God Grant my friend repentance. He'll hear if he's thinking, oh, he thinks God has to do this. And he does. Mm. Pastor Conrad, um, in God's predestining, does God only predestine the big decisions of life so that we will eventually end up where God wants us? with regards to careers and things like that in life? Uh, How does God's sovereignty or God's predestination interact with the decisions that we feel we make? All right. Um, Here's my answer. And I think it's, it's an answer that clears out this matter. As human beings, we tend to think 
at one plane at a time. We tend to think either of human responsibility or of God's sovereignty at any one time. Our minds are not able to operate, to borrow the picture that John used here a moment ago, at the two planes where you are dealing with what it is that we are responsible for and the way we function and at the same time how God first of all has predetermined all things and that's not all he also works all things out so he didn't just decree and go to sleep he's a God who in providence governs history however both of them are realities. They are as real as though the other one didn't exist. So then, to come to this situation, we are all free agents. The process by which you will decide when to rise from that chair, which door to use as you get out here, which staircase to follow, and who you will go home with, is a process you'll be going through quite consciously, desiring and not desiring your heart's affections, taking your volition one way or the other. You are a free moral agent in that sense. However, having said that, God has a hand in all the action that finally comes out. His word says that again and again and again. Nothing in the whole of creation happens by chance. God doesn't just create the right environment and then hope that you will fall into it. He to, re, to use the, the positive one in Philippians uh, 2, where he speaks about uh, God working in such a way as to cause you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Similarly, when you think of the negative, it's always good to think of the, that worst of all negatives. And that is when wicked men lay their hands on Jesus Christ. Again, when the Bible gives us a peep into that, you see that God did not just create an atmosphere in which these people then did things that it was oh, good, they've done it, but he wasn't too sure whether they would do it. But um, I'll just read that text to you. Uh, Acts 4. The wording there also is, is uh, pretty straightforward. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. I think the difficulty we tend to have is when 
it's something which is sinful. Because clearly, God does not tempt anyone to sin. And God himself is not guilty of any sin. The answer that I would give would take us quite a bit of time. It still doesn't take away from the, the biblical truths that we've seen in this text. Because the killing of God's son was a wicked act. So whatever immediate easy answer you might have doesn't take away the fact that here his will decided beforehand what should happen. The Puritans put it this way. I can't quite recall where I read it, but it, it, uh, it said something like this. And it's a little phrase for you to just think about, but I found it very helpful. God has a hand in the act of the sin but not in the sin of the act. That's just food for thought. Thank you. Uh, Pastor John, talking about complementarianism and uh, how would you approach the subject of women ministers, women preachers, can you comment on that? I would try to approach it biblically. <laughs> I, I would go to um, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, talk about male and female and the emergent roles that are implicit there and the effects of the fall. I would go to Ephesians 5 and the home and headship and submission I would go to 1 Timothy uh, 2, where a woman is not to teach of authority over man. And I'll try to draw all this together. <laughs> we've done this, Wayne Grudem and I. We've tried really hard to do it balanced way in the book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Get all that pulled together and then be very careful and very discerning about how we speak. Because your question is ambiguous because you were, I think you used the words minister and pastor. Or some, you used two words. As a synonym. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not taking them as a synonym because I want to caution us to be really careful with our language. Every woman should be a minister. All right? A diakonos. Elders exist to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. All of them. Every woman should be ministering, not just watching soap operas. What a prostitution of her brain. She, she, the, you, you can hear the way I'm approaching this. I'm, I'm, I'm starting where egalitarians think I never go. So I'm going to go after women and call them into the army. Their, their roles in the church and in neighborhood and society and volunteer organizations and missions is massive and should be massive. There is one office alone 
to which they should not aspire, the office of elder. Elders, which I equate now with pastors and bishops um, and shepherds, uh, has qualifications. And when Paul said, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over men, those two things, teach and have authority, are the very two things missing from the list of qualifications of a deacon and distinguishing the elder from the deacon, which means I'm okay with women deacons, which is anathema in a lot of Baptist churches because they don't even have elders. They only have deacons who are elders, which really mixes things up biblically. Okay, If your deacons are elders, then you're going to consider what I'm saying now heresy. They shouldn't be elders. They should be deacons, and elders should be elders, and elders have the governance. So yeah. elders must be apt to teach and elders rule. Deacons don't have to be apt to teach and they don't rule. Paul says, I don't think a woman should teach or rule. In other words, she shouldn't be an elder. That's what it's saying. And so I think it's bi biblical to have an office in the church of men and these men should be to the church like husbands are to wives. Christ-like, lay down your life, build up the children, the women, the men, and not those who lord it over the saints. The eldership is a servant role that takes responsibility for leadership. It is a weight to be born, not a right to be demanded. That's true of being a husband. That's true of being an elder. So, in sum, all the saints, including women, should be ministers. All women are gifted, all women are called, and all women should be uh, building up the faith according to their gifts. And when, back in the days when this was just, when I was being called horrible names by egalitarians, I would go to speak in seminaries back in the 70s and 80s, uh, when this battle seemed to be a lot more intense where I am than it is now. Um, women at the seminaries would stand up with this fire in their eyes and say, you, you're going to call my calling into question? That would be one question. And, and my response was generally, I, I don't want to call your calling into question. I want to call into question your interpretation of it. There may be a calling on your life to teach and a calling on your life to minister and a calling on your life to lead. But you may be construing it to mean teach men, lead men, lead a church of men and women. And maybe it's, it's a, a Beth Moore type ministry. Or a Nancy blanking out. Help me. But Demos. These women who, if they were hearing me talk right now, they'd say, Amen, Amen. That's right. What you're saying is right. Um, so I, I, I don't want to say God hasn't spoken to you. I don't want to say there's any call in your life, but I do biblically want to, here's the sieve, I'm putting it through. I'm not God, this is God's word, not me. And then the other response I sometimes got, and this, I don't want to make it sound too silly, but well, what are we supposed to do? I don't say, you mean if I tell you that there's one office you can't have that 10,000 roles are not open to you? So I wrote this little book, What's the Difference? And at the end, I have a list of 80 
kinds of ministries besides eldership that women should flourish in? I, I just wanted to get, make a list. I mean, it's not a complete list. So when that question, what are we supposed to do? I said, anything. Just do anything. There's, there, two-thirds of the world is women and children. Most of them are suffering. Most of them are lost. Do anything to reach them. That's what I say to, to, to women who, who are coming at me like, what are we supposed to do? Good night. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a world who needs you, who needs you in a thousand ways. They need your teaching and they need your care and they need your mothering and they need your leadership. Just, just relax and say, it's a beautiful thing when godly, humble, non-authoritative Christ-like men sound the note and take the lead. Most women flourish in churches like that. If the men are big shots and try to lord it over, women think that's ridiculous, and it is ridiculous. But where men are shepherds, caring, loving, women are glad because a lot of these women have unbelieving husbands at home. They'd like them to come to church. They don't want them to come to church and see a, a stage filled with women. All women worship leaders, all women leaders, uh, a woman preacher. This guy is going to come and say, it's a woman's thing. I didn't come there. It doesn't usually work the other way. That a woman comes, sees a man preaching, says, this is a man's thing. Some, but not, not usually. It's not the way most women are wired. Would you like to add anything, Pastor Conrad? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, uh, we've run out of time and it's gone real quick. And uh, just thanks to everyone who sent in questions via Twitter and email in the box. And special thanks to Pastor John and Pastor Conrad for sharing with us and allowing us to grow you like this. I want to ask if, uh, Pastor Conrad if you'll just close in prayer for us now. Okay, before I do so, this will be my last time to speak tomorrow. I'm not preaching. I'm one of you in the pews or in the seats listening to uh, the preaching. So let me take this quick opportunity to thank all of you for your fellowship, for your prayers, for your uh, commendation. And um, it's been a joy for me to uh, preach together with John and also have the ministry of uh, uh, Stuart. Uh, I'd like to thank him too for his uh, outstanding ministry. I trust the Lord will uh, continue to um, give the increase to the seed that has been sown and will be sown tomorrow and also uh, to that uh, which will continue to be watered in, in months and years ahead. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. mm. Eternal and gracious God, what a joy it is to have a Bible a book that is consistent, a book that sheds light not only on ecclesiastical issues, but issues of the home, issues of state government, issues that relate to the intricacies of life and living. And therefore we can thank you that even this evening we've had the privilege of sharing that which you have taught us over the years. Again, Lord, we recognize that we do not know all things.
And therefore where we have been amiss, protect the minds and hearts mm. of your people mm -hmm. and lead them mm. in the ways mm. everlasting. Yes. We now plead, O oh Lord, that you give us a good night's rest and bring us back here in the morrow mm. to meet with one another, to worship you and to hear you speak to us in accents clear and still above the storms of passion and the murmurs of self-will. Go before us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.